Well, good morning. Welcome to Trinity. We're delighted to be able to gather together. I don't know what the limitations are on when you stop saying Happy New Year. So we'll, we'll, say, we'll say today, well, after today, we'll stop saying it. But today, Happy New Year to you all. If you were here with us last week, we had our Global Outreach Sunday, an encouraging time, hearing a little bit of the history of Trinity and are also looking forward to what God may do in and through our church family and our global partners around the world who are doing incredible works. So be mindful of that. If you hadn't grabbed one of our guides on uh, our little cards that we have for our global outreach partners, be sure to grab one on the way out. You can put it in your Bible, grab it out every once in a while and pray for somebody by name on the back of that card. It'd be a great way to join in what God is doing. We also want to highlight uh, something we're adding uh, this month and going forward. Uh, there's a little welcome guide when you walk in that usually has just a few highlights or announcements on the back. The second Sunday of every month, so get that, still, you know, drill that in. The second Sunday of every month, there will be a financial update on how we are doing in light of our budget. There will be also be a slide uh, that morning uh, before and after the service if you want to grab that and see how we're doing. As you look at it, you're going to see quite a deficit. Um, that's largely because we budgeted for an, an additional staff person, which we have not yet filled. And so, Lord willing, that will happen in the right t- time that God would see fit. Um, but uh, in terms of our giving and our expenses, we're in a healthy place as a church. I'm so thankful for that. Um, and as the Lord provides, uh, we'll seek to be wise with the stewardship of that. Uh, but you can see that update each month, the second Sunday of the month. You want to grab one of those when you come in. All right. We're back into Ephesians today. We had a wonderful time in Advent season and around Christmas uh, focusing on peace. Uh, that was our main theme. And we put a pause on Ephesians and now we're back. We're, at, we're coming back into Ephesians at a critical part and that's in chapter 4. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up your Bible to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. As we come to God's Word, we need hearts that are ready and eager for it, and so we'll read God's Word and then pray for that and then jump in. So this one's going to be really difficult for us today. Ephesians 4.1, therefore, thus ends the reading of God's Word. Yes, this will be a message based off of one word, therefore. But let's read a little bit before in the rest of verse 1 to get a sense of what's happening with the therefore. All right, so let's start uh, back up in your Bibles a little bit uh, to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, and then we'll read through that and into all of verse 1 of chapter 4. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I therefore... A prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. God, as we come to your word, as we think about this letter, as we think about what is being declared and applied in light of the gospel, God, I pray for hearts that would be eager and hopeful and anticipating you by your gracious power to be at work in in us, and through us. Would you do that now as we come to your word? Help us as we consider 
an important transition in this letter and what that means for our lives. To help us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. When we kicked off our Ephesians series in the fall, we started with gospel grammar. We looked at the first couple of verses of the letter, which are just standard greetings. And we took a moment to consider that there are some very important grammar things going on in that opening. And that gospel grammar was anticipating what Paul would unpack throughout the letter and this great and glorious salvation that God has secured for us. Well, as we come to a very important transition in the letter, we're coming back to some more grammar, if you will, some more gospel grammar, and it comes with a focus on a conjunction, therefore, therefore. A conjunction is a word or phrase that connects words or phrases or clauses and sentences together, showing how one idea necessarily follows from another. And if you're around my age, you grew up with a song about conjunction junctions and train cars connecting and so forth. So maybe that song has already been dusted off in, I can tell by some of your reactions that it has. Mm. Well. <laughs> anyway, a conjunction says there is a a necessary and essential link between two ideas. And in this letter, this conjunction is serving as the essential and necessary link of this entire letter from chapters 1 through 3, linking to chapters 4, 5, and 6. Therefore, Ephesians is laid out in such a way as to say, here is the gospel. It is so amazingly sufficient that it matters in our day-to-day living. It's so uh, amazingly sufficient to our salvation and amazingly sufficient to the way that we live out our lives. The therefore is sitting there to say, all of this is essentially and necessarily linked together. So our objective, our hope this morning is, as we reintroduce um, ourselves to Ephesians, that we would see that applying the gospel to our daily life is indeed a necessary and essential outcome of it in our lives. As we do that, I want us to think through how the gospel is essentially showing us a few things. I'm getting a buzz behind me. I'm not sure why. But I will lose my mind if, it, if, if I have to, like, fight the concentration level. And so if you want to kill whatever that is, I'm not sure. Sorry. Sorry about that. Anyway, so the gospel essentially shows us three things. First, what is true? The gospel is declaring to us what is true. Secondly, the gospel is going to show us how to live. And then putting all this together as we get ready to dig into the rest of this letter, we're going to find that the gospel shows us why it matters. Why it matters. Thank you, by the way. Appreciate that. All right. So first of all, what is true? What is true? The gospel is essentially showing us what is true. And what we find here in our gospel grammar is, is that gospel indicatives declare what God has done. Gospel indicatives declare what God has done. And 
I'm going to borrow some grammar terminology to lay out how this letter is set up and why all of this is mattering to us now. First of all, we're talking about an indicative move of verbs. The indicative mood of verbs. And what that is doing is it's telling us what is true. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, there's an incredible focus on who God is and what God has done. And it's declared to us in the way that Paul wrote the letter, in the way that he used the structure and the verbs of everything that he was saying in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And it's all overwhelmingly focused on these gospel indicatives, declaring to us what is true about who God is and what God has done. And I want to just take a second here, because the fall was a while ago, and then we had the busyness of the holidays. So I want to refresh us by just walking through quickly how each chapter from 1, 2, and 3 were declaring to us what is true about who God is and what He has done. Just, just This is a, a purposeful fire hydrant for us right now. So listen up. Be like a kid out on the street and the fire hydrant's been kicked open. We're going to dance and splash in this water. This is overwhelming to take it all at once. In chapter 1, listen to these gospel indicatives. Declarations about what is true about who God is and what He has done. Chapter 1. God has blessed us, chosen us, loved us, predestined us, purposed salvation, secured redemption through sacrifice, forgiven us, lavished us with grace, made known His purpose to us, planned to sum up all things in time and space and history in Jesus, given us an inheritance, providentially works out His will in history, brought the gospel to us, sealed us up by the Holy Spirit, gave us a guarantee, gave us a spirit of wisdom and knowledge of Him, called us into this glorious riches, declared His immeasurably great power toward us, displayed this great power in raising Jesus from the dead, seated Jesus in the highest place, and given Him the greatest authority and put everything under His feet, who happens to fill all things. That's just declared in chapter 1. That's just, it's just stated as fact. as what is true of who God is and what He has done. Chapter 2. Even though we were dead in our sin and rebellious to such a God, He made us alive and united us to Christ because He is rich in love and mercy for us and poured out His grace on us to save us. He also seated us with Jesus in those heavenly places. And all of this to show off his immeasurable riches of grace and kindness toward us. Those riches of grace and kindness are evident in our faith in Jesus as we set aside trying to gain salvation through works. We gain it through faith. And our very saved lives are God's workmanship. And this workmanship continues in and through the church where God displays his gracious purpose to bring together and build a new redeemed people who experience reconciliation and peace together. Just declared. There's nothing for us to do. There's no actions for us to take. It's just declared. Stated. Gospel indicatives declaring what is true. Chapter 3. God uses this gospel ministry of the church to reveal the gracious mystery of the gospel that in Jesus all of God's purposes and promises are given to his people. The unsearchable riches of Christ are sufficient for all who hear the gospel and believe and that God shows off before all things, seen and unseen, the power of the gospel and his grace in the redemption of his people and their belonging to the church. And in Christ, God has granted access with him and calls us to him to come with boldness and confidence because we are welcome to. So we are promised 
further riches of glory and grace as our lives are strengthened in Christ to know him and love him and follow him and that God can do this and far more than we can even dare to dream or hope. Declared. Declared. I mean, this, that's a, that's, I feel like I didn't preach any of that. It feels like, oh my goodness, we got to go back and go over all of that again. These are gospel indicatives. Gospel indicatives declare what is true about God, and they saturate this letter. You cannot escape them, nor should you want to. Now, the other important mood, verb mood, is one that we sometimes think about more often, and that is the imperative. That's all the stuff that comes after the therefore, the things that we are supposed to do, that we're called to do. Um, the imperative focuses on what one must do or how to live. But before considering the things that come after the therefore, before considering the gospel imperatives of how to live, we cannot move past or set aside or lay down or forget the gospel indicatives. Some of us are visual learners, and so I have a couple of slides I want us to see. The first visual is just comparing this letter's use of indicatives and imperatives. So this pie chart, the red on this pie chart represents indicatives. It's just under 75% of the letter is simply declaring what is true about God and what he has done. There are 121 indicatives in the letter. The smaller, darker section is the imperatives. It's just a hair over 25%. And there are 41 imperatives in this letter. It's a small letter, so that's still a lot of imperatives. But in comparison, it is saturated with indicatives. Now also, let's look at the next slide. See where all of this is laid out. So again, the red is representing the indicatives. And and that's six chapters of Ephesians. Those are the hits of the verbs in all six chapters. The red is showing you all of the indicatives of the letter. And then the dark is showing you the imperatives of the letter. And so as you can see, we are now entering into a part of the letter that's going to emphasize the imperatives. And everything after the therefore is is going to be our focus as we go through this letter. And you notice that little blip in the first three chapters. That little blip is just two times in which the imperative to remember occurs. That we're to remember all the red stuff. And then it shows up in the way that we live. We'll come back to that graph here in a moment. But I wanted you to see that we cannot move past these indicatives, these gospel indicatives that are declaring what is true. And because we need to know and understand that every imperative of Ephesians rests on the indicative. Every call to how to live is resting on what is true. And that order can never be reversed. And so we have to ask ourselves, are these indicatives, are they strong enough to take on the calls that the letter gives us? Is what we just rattled off enough for us in the way that we live? I love this quote from Sinclair Ferguson. He says this, The great gospel imperatives to holiness are ever rooted in indicatives of grace that are able to sustain the weight of Of those imperatives. The things that we just declared are true. The things that the Apostle Paul has emphasized so heavily in this most remarkable and wonderful letter. 
are sufficient for how you live. They can take the weight. God can take the weight of this. We can never flip that. We can't flip the percentage. We, we can't flip those colors. We can't say that all our doing is what matters most. It's what God has done. And Paul's letter drives that home to us. So, just by way of like, how do we, like, what is it that we take away with when we consider this? Well, first of all, just stop for a second and settle your head and saturate your heart on what God has already done. What is declared as true. Just take the, the visual sort of count that we just saw there. Just think about the, the dynamic of just the red to the, to the dark. Yes, we're going to get into that dark stuff, into the imperatives and how we are to live. We will tackle those things because they matter. We'll see that here in a moment. But before we do that, the only way it matters in your life is when your head is settled and your heart is saturated on that, which is already true about God and His grace and His mercy for you. Don't mix up that order. See how that emphasis is not only true in this letter, but throughout the New Testament and true for your life. Now, the therefore is important. As I said, it's connecting two really big ideas. What God has done and how we are to live. And so what comes after the therefore then is speaking to how to live. And so what we find there is then gospel imperatives. And gospel imperatives show us what we are to do. In light of what God has done, it shows what we are to do. And it's important to see that imperatives are downstream indicatives. The, the current is flowing one way. It's flowing one direction from God and His grace into our lives. And so the call to how we are to live is downstream from God's gracious gospel indicatives that he's poured out. That means we can't work our way up to what the indicatives declare to be true about God. You're not salmon. You're not to go swimming upstream. That tireless journey, you'll never reach the destination. You'll never make it. The current is too hard, too difficult, too strong. It is only downstream. Grace flows downward to us. We never work upward and receive grace as a reward. The layout of this letter, the point of emphasis that we see visually, but also in word content and direction, show us that imperatives flow from indicatives. All that we considered in review of gospel indicatives in chapter 1, 2, and 3 is brought to us. It's brought to us. All of that, which we just, I rattled off as quickly as I could. It's actually brought to us in our sin, in our neediness, in our weakness, in our shame. We did not clean up ourselves. We did not make ourselves presentable to God. And then we're welcomed in. It came to us while we were enemies. 
It came to us while we had hearts hardened toward God. It came to us and brought life. We did not swim up the stream. But this life that we have been given is also then to be lived in response. And imperatives show us how to live this new life, life we have received. Imperatives do not show us how to get what only Christ could gain and give to you. They show us how to live out our lives. They don't show us how to get new life. And yet all that God has done for us, to us, and in us, isn't just empty calories. It actually leads to a whole new way of living that you would never have chosen before His grace burst into your life. The therefore is important, for we see imperatives show us the way of this new life. Paul in the New Testament, they do this all the time. They do it in verses, they do it in paragraphs, and like Ephesians, they do this in a whole book of the Bible. Take, for example, Paul's summary of gospel indicatives in Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, verses 8 and 10 says, Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. Anchoring our life in Christ. A declarative statement about the sufficiency of Jesus to overcome sin and give us life. Then verse, just a couple of words later, comes the gospel imperative in Romans 6, 12 and 13. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So even the imperative here is saturated with indicative. And your members to God as instruments for righteousness. It's important. You don't live out Romans 6, 12 and 13 to get Romans 6, 8 and 10. You live out Romans 6, 12, and 13 because you have received Romans 6, 8, and 10. You don't live out Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6 to get what you see in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. You've received Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. Therefore, live out Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. This is an important distinction because we sometimes wrestle with that kind of thought process. Where we inherently in us think, oh, I got to do better for God. Or God is displeased with me. Or God is frustrated with me. And I got to do more 4, 5, and 6 in order to better understand or gain 1, 2, and 3. Theologian Michael Horton put it this way. If the indicative tells us who we already are in Christ, the imperative instructs us in how we should therefore live out that new reality. And that's what this letter is doing for us. Helps us to see that receiving gospel indicatives through faith leads to living out gospel imperatives by faith. If we receive it through faith, then we live it out by faith. If we have been made alive in Christ, it is then natural to see we are to live in Christ. If we look at imperatives as, I have to do these or else then it may mean we don't quite grasp all that God has already done. 
It may also mean we think that Jesus did, let's say, 97%. And yet we're still on the hook for 3%. So we don't feel so overwhelmed by 100%. We're grateful for the curve that Jesus is, but we, we still are on the hook for 3%. No, that, that, that's wrong in the way that it would have an impact on our living. No, we, we are to see the reception of gospel indicatives through faith to be consistent with the living out of gospel imperatives by faith. Let's look again at that visual on that graph that we had earlier. As you can see, the indicatives never stop in Ephesians. In fact, the greatest concentration of them are actually in the portion that is filled with imperatives. So that which is true about who God is and what God has done is still saturating and informing and shaping and fueling then how we are to live. And in so doing, seeing that and just visually seeing that on this, on this graphic helps us to, to refrain, if you will, from falling into one of two errors when we come to talking about how we are to live in light of all that God has done for us in the gospel. One error is often called moralism. Moralism. And that is, thinking our doing gains God's giving. Our doing gains God's giving. That's an error. If you look back at that graph, that red saturates the entire letter. And in that error, it's overestimating ourselves. It's overestimating our ability to do what God would have us to do according to the standard of God in and of our own strength. I just want to break it to you. You can't. You can't. You can't live perfectly. Christ lived perfectly on your behalf. And so understanding the relationship of gospel indicatives and gospel imperatives is helpful because it keeps us from the error of moralism. It also keeps us from a second error. It's a weird word at first, so I'll just throw the word up there. But it's anonymianism, which is basically saying it's like living as if living doesn't really matter. It's like a loose life because, you know, whatever, God's got me covered. So it doesn't really matter how I live. And what that does is it, it actually cheapens God's grace. God's grace is free, yes. But God's grace comes to us at a great cost. Jesus Christ entered into humanity and he lived a perfect life and he died a sacrificial death and he went into a tomb and he overcame it by the power of God. All of that shows us just how significantly important this is. And, and to say that our lives that we have been rescued to don't matter how we live, it doesn't really matter, you live however you want, God's got you, is to cheapen the very depth and magnitude of God's grace to rescue. Both of those are errors. And our narrow way forward is to hold very tightly to gospel indicatives and gospel imperatives to see just even the structure of this most remarkable letter as giving us incredible guidance of how to live out our lives. And that's just where we go next. Is that the gospel here shows us why it matters. We not only see what is true and how to live in light of what is true, 
but we find that it matters greatly because the gospel changes everything. Because of God and his immeasurable grace, that is, gospel indicatives, we have some new things in our lives. And those new things get lived out. That's why the therefore is so crucially important to see in Ephesians 4.1. The first thing that we find is that we are given a new identity. We go from dead to alive, sinner to saint, rebellious enemy to treasured possession, orphaned and alone to son or daughter, in sin to in Christ. This is remarkable. This is why this matters. And so all of that new has a new way of living that comes with it. Like a toddler learning to walk, that's a newfound sense of freedom. Some of us are going to be like that spiritually. We're going to be clumsy. We're going to fall. We're going to get into the cereal cupboard and make a mess. But we're going to grow. We're going to gain coordination. We're going to get bigger and then we're going to hit teenage years and we're going to lose all coordination whatsoever. Then we're going to grow again. Get more comfortable in our skin. I mean, that's going to take shape over the course of our lives. But we have a new identity. So to a couple of kinds of people that might be in this room with us this morning. To the spiritually adrift. I hope you hear the gospel indicatives as a call to come in out of the storm. That God has sufficiently and thoroughly provided salvation through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That there is no other hope, no other way to be right with God, to be in a saving relationship with Him than through faith in Jesus Christ. That the staggering and overwhelming description that we rattled through in chapters 1, 2, and 3, they're yours. They're they're yours through faith in Christ who lived and died and rose again to rescue you from your sin and to restore you to God. If you are spiritually adrift, I, I pray that you, you see the picture here of this gospel and why it matters so greatly and that you would turn to Christ through faith in him, just simply acknowledging and trusting, God, I, I'm a mess, I'm adrift, I'm uncertain, but I want Christ. That's true for you. If that's something you're wrestling with, I'd love to talk to you. After this service. To another person in this room. That could be in this room. To those who are sunk under the shame of sin. Where it feels like sin. Is choking you out. Controlling you. And and submerging you in the shame. This is a call. To come into the rest. And joy of the love of God through you for you through Jesus who took all of your sin and shame he took it all to the cross for you there is nothing left for you to bear he took all the shame he took all the penalty he broke all the power yes that means that life might be hard But the shame does not win. 
Jesus took all your sin and all your shame and bore it for you all on the cross. That incredible description and rattling through of chapters 1, 2, and 3 describe a God who was doing this while you were in your sin and shame, not after you got yourself cleaned up a bit. He is not afraid of your sin and shame. It does not overwhelm him. And so I say to you, run to this God who has immeasurable grace for sinners such as us. You have a new identity. You're not called by your sin. Your new identity is in Christ. Come and rest in that. Second thing that we find that this matters in in light of how this all matters is that not only do we have a new identity, but we have, we gain a new community. A new community. We now belong to the people of God. Fellow redeemed people who are being united together, who are living out their new lives imperfectly, yes, but living them out nonetheless together in Jesus. You're not alone in the sense that there's no one else who can understand or relate to someone struggling to follow after Jesus. You're in a room of strugglers. And we get to struggle together with a God who is sufficient for us. So to a couple of people that might be in this room with us, might be watching with us online, I want to say a couple of things. In light of this new community, to to the widow or to the one struggling with loneliness, there is a call that is inherent as we get through Ephesians. There's a call to not withdraw, but rather to gather and to belong. And if those are the things that you wrestle with, if that's the context in your life right now that you're wrestling with, this is a people. We are a people that are struggling this side of glory, but rejoicing because we're on this side of the cross. And we want to be able to do that together. I encourage you to not withdraw. The other group of us that may represent the rest of us As we go through Ephesians, we are going to see and feel that the rest of us are going to be faced with a call to reach out and bring in those who are alone, those who are lonely, those who are widowed, those who are new, and so forth. That we want to make it easy for others to take steps forward into this new community. So bring people into your life. Bring people into your home. And if you find that your life is dominated, that your schedule is dominated, that there's very little time for community, then ask God for wisdom on how to make that different. Or capacity and strength to bring people along into your lives. To share out this life together, following out a sufficient God who has grace for days for us. We have a new community. We're going to get instructions on how to live that out together. We have a new identity. We are giving instructions of how to understand that and apply that together. And then thirdly, we have a new mission. We have a new mission. As we work through Ephesians, as we see what God has brought together for us, 
in the gospel, declaring what is true, showing us how to live. We no longer live for ourselves. Our mission has been changed to live for God and His glory. Our mission is to make much of Jesus to each other and with others. I love 2 Corinthians 5.15. Anchoring all this and tying it all together, he says, And he, Jesus, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, Jesus, who for their sake died and was raised. To live for ourselves is to choose a house with a seven-foot ceiling. God's given us the vaulted home of his grace in this new community with this glorious mission. To a couple of groups of people that might be in this room, to the young adults and the empty nesters, this is a call to not blow your newfound freedoms on yourselves. To give yourself away to serving others as you serve and follow after Christ. Take the freedoms that you have, the opportunities that are before you, and to give them to the Lord. To give them to others so that they can come and see and know and experience just how great and glorious Jesus is. So I would say to you, become a Stephen minister. Serve in our nursery. Start a discipleship group purposefully getting one other guy or lady who is older than you and one other guy or lady who is younger than you and meet and read the Bible together. Jump into our global outreach team and help us plan and prepare and lead a short-term mission trip to one of our global outreach partners. Open your home. Regularly have our seniors or our 20-somethings over or both. Don't waste opportunities that you have you have been brought into a new mission you don't have to go far to do it to live it it could be just a row over from you right now i want to encourage you in this the gospel matters greatly we have a new identity we have a new community and we have a new mission so therefore of Ephesians 4 is essential and necessary. It links to us all that is true about who God is and what he has done and why it matters to how we live out our lives. So friends, let us not ever think we go beyond that which is true. We go deeper into it. and We see it reflected more and more and more in our lives and in our church. His glory and our good. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word and we ask that you would press it into our hearts and into our heads, into our lives, that you would encourage us, strengthen us to live in light of all that we have received. God, help our, our, our heads and our hearts be saturated with a growing grasp and wonder and awe and worship of who you are and what you have done. And may it be reflected more and more and more in our lives and in our church. God, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand as we finish our morning together?
praising the one who is coming soon. Jesus is 